Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. On this week's show, we have Tim Lywicki, the founder of Oakview Group, in just a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. And let's start with Michigan. It's a story that I first had seen out of the Detroit Free Press, and it involves donors. Explain, please. Well, you're a Detroit guy, and you said the full name. Don't you just say the Freep? Yeah. but well, You said the Detroit Free but Press. But I wanted to give extra props to Detroit. Oh. oh, yeah, you got an extra Detroit mention. Yeah. Now, we'll, now, on first reference, full Detroit Free Press, from now on, we will just say Freep. Right. Nice yeah, job by so. the Freep. Yeah, in <laughs> essence, I mean, it's a wealthy family donating to the university, to the football program, sending them abroad, things like that. However, that's like, it seems, I'm not saying there is, but in the what could be quid pro quo, the university then invests with the family's funds. Uh, doesn't look great doesn't pass the smell test when you don't want examination of these things yeah it seems like a good deal if you're a donor and you've given as as donald graham and his family have 60 million dollars to the university over the past few years and the university has in turn invested over a hundred million dollars uh, now let me see your, if i have this right Evan, do i have this right in the management do, fund. do i have this right it's been a long time since i've been in a class but <laughs> 100 Greater than, and I'm making that little alligator, that's how you learned it, greater right. than 60. You nailed it. Okay. Yeah. So, so good deal for the great family. Yeah. Um, and the, the Michigan football team went to, went to Paris this year, went to France. Uh, Donald Graham was one of the donors alongside uh, Activision's for, Bobby Kotick. The yeah. yeah, they each they split the cost of, of, of this great experience. Again, as we talk about money in college sports. Nobody you sold know. sneakers, though. <laughs> also a Jordan brand, also a Jordan company. Um, but yeah, this probably happens across college sports in a lot of ways and good on, on the free press for, for exposing it. Let's talk about soccer, the Serie A deal with ESPN. Yeah, well, guess what? Cristiano Ronaldo heads to Serie A and Serie A gets a big deal on ESPN's platforms. This ESPN Plus, everybody's fighting for the stuff. And it was, what was it on BN? BN last year? Last I believe it was in B, on BN, yeah. B, BN. And you just—it was the same as La Liga, by the way. Had a B and deal. They took the money. They took the money the first time. A lot of these leagues, because B and was offering big dollars, but they don't get the exposure. I think they've come to realize that you need to be seen. You need—you need these brands. You need these players. You can't have Ronaldo not being seen in the United States. If you're a global soccer fan here in the U.S., I think you're realizing that you know this this era of being able to watch all these great tournaments with ease and at low cost is over you know the sport is popular enough now in the US that you know Syria ah behind a paywall now at ESPN plus a large portion or a portion of the Premier League on NBC now behind a paywall when Turner got Champions League that is now also behind a paywall largely uh in the past we've been able to watch a lot of these soccer and say what you will about BN it didn't have the distribution in the US but it was part of a lot of cable packages that's no longer true as right. well they're feuding with Verizon I believe uh soccer is becoming harder or just more expensive to watch in the US as US consumers draw themselves more to I like this the battle sport. for content though because if you're going to charge and what what was ESPN plus like 6 bucks yeah, five ninety nine. Oh yeah. So 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 if you're gonna charge, I mean, I would say, do I get value? I'm now getting nine matches live from August to to May. If I'm a soccer fan from Syria, including Cristiano Ronaldo, I can watch Milan, Roma, Inter Milan. I I see value there. 
I want to see these teams. Well, yeah. is the Syria deal, is this a wave of the future for soccer deals to bring it here to the U.S.? It's the wave of the now. Yeah, the future is now. You have all these OTTs yeah, the fighting for the contact. Fox. Bundesliga yeah. Fox, yeah. You, you, these F, Bayern Munich has an office here in New York. Everybody is fighting for their share of the sponsorship dollar in the U.S. It's the biggest sports sponsorship market in the world. And all these clubs, these are brand names. Barcelona has an office here. They are fighting for the share of the dollar. And you better be popular. But the kids here better be playing your team on the video games. They better be watching your games on, on not only Saturdays, if it's EPL, but throughout the week. They better buy your jerseys. That's how you make the money. This is the next story. The next story here is something you wrote about. Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man, and his baseball company. Yeah, everybody knew Cal had this sort of baseball company. It's aimed at youth. He has three facilities in the U.S., including one in Aberdeen, Maryland, where he's from. But as we said, Eben, in previous shows, it's it's about what can I do now? I've gotten something to a certain point, and then I need help, whether it's F1 and Bernie Ecclestone or Cal Ripken Jr. and this entity. So he brought on Lion Tree, which invests a lot in the tech digital space. Um, the CEO of Lion Tree is going to be on the board, and they're going to look to see how do they scale this business. The existing model, number one, but then how do they scale it using technology, driving digital? How can they scale what Cal has already built? It certainly seems like a good group to bring on board. For, for folks who don't know Lion Tree, they're a big investor in the athletic, the the, the subscription sports news service, uh, Fubo TV, Second Spectrum, the sports data company. Uh, you know they've they've worked with Snap, they've worked with the, the the Charter Communications, Time Warner cable merger. You know these are people that 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 really, it's an investment bank, really understands the digital space, how new media is evolving, and and as Scott said, if you're Cal Ripken and his baseball group. That is certainly a valuable wealth of information to tap into. And Cal into. told me they've been talking about it for years. It wasn't just a sort of let's do it. He, he was getting to know Aria for a while and, and then said, okay, this makes sense. Let's move on. So not just knee-jerk. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi williams And now for this week's interview, we speak with Tim Lawicki, the founder of Oakview Group, a Los Angeles-based global advisory, development, and investment company for the sports and live entertainment industries. Tim is a sports executive with an extensive resume, being former president and CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and former president and CEO of AEG. Michael, he certainly knows his way around the sports world. And Tim, thanks so much for joining us. On this show, we talk about sports business, and that encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. What is foremost on your mind when we say the sports business world? Well, I, let's uh, differentiate between my mind, which occasionally could be nothing more than just a wasteland, and our business, which is really about the facility side. And I think you, you're spot on as to the changes in sports and the business side of sports. Uh, it's much more complicated, much more diverse. So today... If you look 40, 50 years ago when I first started in the industry, there were sports owners that were in the business of selling tickets. That, that's what the industry was, selling tickets and winning games. And then suddenly things began to change, and it didn't change in one big felt swoop. 
it was different eras and different influence. And we began to see the influence of distribution. Let us not forget that many of the owners today in professional sports uh, were still or became owners of their various teams and their various assets when there were three or four networks. It wasn't that long ago that we were all talking about the genius of Fox and their NFL bid that ultimately made them a viable fourth network for distribution. And the NFL also made the Simpsons the Simpsons, and we know what happened with that franchise. Yep. And so, ironically, this whole period of distribution is an influence and an impact that has happened in the last 30 to 40 years in sports and is getting even more challenging, more interesting, and more opportunistic as we now see streaming and what the impact of streaming is to businesses like music and whether or not that ultimately will have an impact on sports. Time will tell. But I think we have only begun to see the first part of the evolution and thus the impact of distribution. And then these little things like um, arenas and stadiums and facilities started becoming much more important. And we went from a municipally based vision on how to build stadiums. You know, when I just started in the business and I was growing up as a young tyke, Remember the baseball stadium, so if you thought about Bush Stadium where I grew up in St. Louis, if you thought about um, Cincinnati and their ballpark, Pittsburgh and their ballpark, um, all of the baseball stadiums looked a lot alike. They were those concrete round jungles, and every one of them kind of stuck to the same blueprint except the great traditional old buildings like Wrigley or Fenway, but it was, they were cookie cutters and they were municipally driven and they were kind of put up without a lot of imagination, a lot of amenities and a lot of thinking about suddenly the different revenue streams that were going to have an impact. Everything kind of changed with the palace. That was the first building I remember. Tim, I have to jump in on you. My, my, my now late cousin, Bob Sosnick, don't ask me the the Detroit Soshniks lost the H, and the New York Soshniks kept it. But my, my late cousin, Bob Sosnick, was one of the founders and partners on the original palace. Isn't that – it's amazing. People never give that building credit, but it was the first one that kind of thought a little bit outside the box. Then Doc Bus came along with a forum, and suddenly there was Senate seats and naming rights, and things began to change. And then the buildings became much more sophisticated, much more driven by revenue streams. And now I, I'd argue that there are many – sports assets where either the land and or the buildings are more valuable or as valuable as the teams. Um, Stan Kroenke is spending, the rumor is, $5 billion. Yeah, keep going. The price tag keeps going up. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know when this is going to be broadcast. but <laughs> Yeah, you wait a week, it could be $6 billion. <laughs> But I, I think it's a, a pretty good example of how suddenly the facilities became much more complicated and much more profitable. And then we had entertainment districts that suddenly came along, and now sports owners were developers. And so they were developers, they were builders, they were facility owner and operators, they were regional network uh, distribution partner creators and owners, and everything got so much more complicated. But that's why sports teams have become so much more valuable, and that 
having the discretionary income and suddenly not being just reliant on tickets uh, or distribution or sponsorship. And now you have literally 12, 15 different major line items that all of these business entities are creating and that the sports team is at the center of the universe, but it's no longer not only the universe, it's not even the majority of the universe anymore. That's kind of what's changed. And so what Oakview is doing is saying, instead of trying to be all things to all people, let's find a, a niche that we ultimately get very focused on and get very good at. And that niche happens to be the facility side of it. Since I made a Simpsons reference earlier, this is what I think about as in what you just described as the evolution. There's there's a famous scene in The Simpsons where there's a you see him going into mom and pop's hardware shop, and then there's a lid. Do you know what's coming? There's yep. a there's a little little sign as you're going in that says a division of Global Dominance Inc. <laughs> <laughs> mom and pop is the team. The Global Dominance Inc. is everything else that revolves around it now. Well, look, I, it, it, all you have to do is look at companies like Amazon. And, and you know, the 10 years ago, the largest um, hotel company in the world didn't exist, and now it's Airbnb. And so you look at the largest transportation company in at least the United States, if not worldwide soon, uh, Uber and Lyft didn't exist. Uh, the iPhone didn't exist 12 years ago. Amazon was kind of, it was a book company. It was a retail bookstore. So it's pretty amazing how quickly everything's changing, how much more global everything is, how much more dominant a few players are and it's it's really going to i think good news for sports is i think sports if you think about tv and distribution and ratings sports and live types of results are still going to be very very critical to the distribution platforms no matter who it is that wins this battle and and i think that's good for sports i think we're always going to be in a good position to be relevant about where people spend their time what people want to watch where people want to spend their money and what people are willing to to be part of the live experience to see we're talking with tim lewicki who is the CEO of the Oakview Group. i got to go back to something you said because I'm a native Detroiter, and you mentioned the palace, and you're exactly right. And, and this is a very quick story. When I went to go see the palace, I'm like, oh, my God, this place is gorgeous. But if I remember right, it was right around the end time of the old Tiger Stadium at Michigan and Trumbull, and I went back to watch a game at uh, the old Tiger Stadium. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and obviously they've torn it down so now you have a, a whole brand new facility uh, with Comerica Park and everything in the Detroit area with baseball Ford Field for football and now you have uh, the Red little Wings little all Caesars. playing there too yeah Little Caesars and I'm yeah, wondering now, by the way the Palace is gone yeah or yeah. soon to be gone yeah it's. I'm wondering if this is the wave of the future where everything now is put into a centralized location for all the major sports groups? It, you know, I, I, I wish I was um, I wish I was smart enough to predict the future. I wish that, that there was someone like Nostradamus we could go see and have a pretty good idea where all of this is going because everything changes so rapidly. I Just in my career, I've been through mass exodus to the suburbs, i.e. the palace, and if you think about these arenas and stadiums that were built, um, 
and and all of a sudden they were being built on the outskirts of the urban core instead of in in the middle of the urban core. So go look at Phoenix and what they did with both the hockey arena and the football stadium. It, yeah, it works for the, football. It doesn't work for hockey. Forty-one and eight is vastly different things, vastly yep. different audiences. Yep, but 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 now suddenly in Detroit is a really good example. The, the success of the Palace, and, and that was the dominant building in the marketplace. The Pistons were the hot team. The Palace was the hot building. They built an amphitheater nearby between the amphitheater and the Palace. That's where all the music went. Nothing went to the Joe except for the hockey games. You you wouldn't go down there to go see music. Suddenly, in one felt it just a complete brand-new philosophy in that town with the football stadium, the baseball stadium, the hockey, and the basketball arena now all being located downtown. And by the way, the Elitch family owning, what, 20-some-odd blocks of real estate in the urban core, and those stadiums and the footfall that they attract is going to be the core of ultimately building on a new vision of urban rejuvenation and development. And so we, in all of our lifetimes, we saw an exodus to the suburbs where people were giving away land and willing to underwrite stadiums. And you saw things like Gillette Stadium uh, that, that left the urban core of, of downtown Boston. Um, it was actually never there, but it, it went way on the outskirts of that metropolitan area. And everything's changing now. And so everything is coming back down into the urban core. And the stadiums and arenas, after being told for years and years, and years by these professors and politicians and the NIMBY leaders that they weren't ultimately good economic generators. They wouldn't ultimately turn the economy around in these communities. It's exactly the opposite. They now are the the golden gem that many communities are trying to encourage private developers to come in and put back down in the urban core and then plan a whole entertainment district and thus a massive rejuvenation of the inner city around these sports and entertainment facilities. And so everything goes in cycles. Maybe we'll see another one in our lifetime. But I think right now what we are seeing is um, you're occasionally going to see things like Jerry Jones and and that beautiful unbelievable stadium that he's built and that's on clearly on the outskirts of Dallas but but that's unique to Texas Texas does things a little bit differently Houston and Dallas um, they, they don't have the same kind of urban drive and energy that a lot of the other cities have and for example the Northeast maybe maybe we will see another cycle but for right now what's interesting to me is we're seeing a lot of these facilities and a lot of money being spent on these facilities like Detroit, like what's happening now in Milwaukee, like what happened in downtown Minneapolis with the football stadium and the baseball stadium and the and the basketball arena. These are the real catalyst and the nucleus is for spurring on great rejuvenation and economic impact. And it's it's a fascinating time because most of that burden is shifted to the private sector, and yet they're still getting built. Yeah, we are chatting with Tim Lewicki, founder of the Oakview Group. And Tim, let's talk about what everything old is new again. In Seattle, your project, you're refurbishing Key Arena. The key here, Howard Schultz was unable to get it done because he asked for public money. We all know the Sonics leave, but you're in now. Your partner is David Bonderman. He's in on the group. Uh, I mean, how do you see this moving forward in terms of the broader real estate play in a market like Seattle? 
Well, I, so the first thing we did that was thinking outside the box is we literally are, everyone says we're, we're refurbishing or um, doing kind of a, a refresher there. It, it's actually a, it's a whole new arena. So what's happening is we're gutting everything underneath that roof, just tearing everything out. Is it we're akin to what to, they did at MSG? Would you say and they didn't want restoration? They wanted the word well, no, not renovation it, to re- it, or even more. So the thing with MSG is the bull for the most part stayed intact. They put in new seats and new scoreboards, but that bull didn't change much. So what's happening in, in key arena is we will literally tear everything out of the building. So every piece of concrete, every piece of rebar, the support beams, the seats, the concourses, everything. We excavate the entire arena out of uh, that that hole. We go down another 15 feet. We go out about 35 feet on each side, and we double the size of the hole. So we suddenly go from 350 to 400,000 square feet to 750,000 square feet, and we build a brand-new arena, but we keep the roof because the roof was built in 1962. It's a historic monument, federal, state, and city. And we're paying homage to the 74 acres of the Seattle Center, which was really created for the 1962 World's Fair in Seattle. And that's when the Space Needle was built, and that's when that arena was built. And so what we're doing that's different than others have tried, and some have done like the Ackerleys back in the 90s, we're literally gutting it and building a brand-new arena. And so we're spending $700 million, and we'll, we'll have a brand-new arena, and we're privatizing it. And the reason that you can privatize it today is interest rates are low. Uh, That's not going to stay forever. Uh, But for right now, you kind of look at either getting the money for free from the public sector and fighting that battle with the the politics and and the question of do communities ultimately have a better use of that money. I, for one, think they do. I'd rather spend it on education, safety, and transportation. Wait, Bart, do you hear that? A guy who's putting up an arena, I know with private funds, but a guy putting up an arena is saying he doesn't like the use of public funds for arenas. Uh, yeah, you don't I, hear I, it every day. I didn't. I didn't miss the miss that at all. Some, sometimes was, you nap yeah. in the afternoon. Well, I want to make sure. You know, it's 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 old man. <laughs> we, so each city has a different kind of economic desire. So in the case of Staples Center and LA Live, it was for the most part completely privately financed by AG. In the case of Seattle, it's completely privately financed. But you're going to see others like Sprint Center in Kansas City. Um, we're working on a project now on an East Coast city that's not going to get an anchor tenant. We do need a little bit of help out of the city. But for the most part, I do believe in these private-public relationships. I do believe the private sector should take the majority, if not all, the risk. And I do think cities ultimately should stay focused on the core services that only cities and municipalities are going to be able to provide. And that's life safety, it's transportation, it's education. And we and we need them to stay focused on it because clearly we're not doing a good enough job. So I'm okay right now trying to find those opportunities within our company where we find a private-public partnership. We, we seek every incentive we possibly can get. In the case of Seattle, we get historic tax credits because we did keep the roof in place. But, you know, money is reasonably cheap still, and if you could go out and borrow it at a decent rate, why not challenge yourself and put the burden on things like naming rights, suites, premium seats, and sponsorship? Did you lock in the price of raw materials, or is that having an effect on the overall budget? 
Uh, no, we did not. And yes, it is. And so, <laughs> I guess it's not on not on the down. <laughs> I I I don't know if this is a um, uh, a little negotiation game we're playing right now on tariffs. I don't know if this is uh, a true. Um, long-term debate that is going to continue. Uh, but for us in the, in the industry where we buy rebarb and we buy steel and we buy uh, aluminum and a lot of other goods that are manufactured <clears throat> outside the United States, um, or even in, in, in the case of some of the materials inside the United States, what's happened is we have seen a rapid inflation on those costs. Because even even when you have manufacturers and suppliers that are within the United States, they know they could charge more now because of the tariffs. And so um, it costs more to build these things. We've seen a pretty rapid cost increase in Seattle. But my guess is this will calm down, and hopefully he's just negotiating. We're talking with Tim Laiwecki, the CEO of the Oakview Group. And I'll go back to something you were mentioning earlier about transportation in the cities, getting to sporting venues and things like that. Will it become a necessity one day for the sports groups to provide some sort of transportation, some sort of light rail service to get to their venues. Bar, guess what? You know he's also developing the uh, the Elmont Arena for the New York Islanders. That's a, the, you want to know if you need transportation. That's, that's an example. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting at. So, yeah. So it, it's a really interesting question, and we're so we have 12 of these facilities that we're either locked in on, like Seattle or Belmont, or um, we, we we have a couple of others that we haven't announced yet, and I'm trying not to announce them here. One is an um, East Coast city that doesn't have an anchor tenant. <laughs> that's that's absolutely <laughs> true, and I didn't say which city. Not this. <laughs> I'd be okay if you'd like to tell us. We'd, yeah, we'd be fine with that. I always, so I, I'm um, the, the the constant debate is the one we just talked about, which is trying to really define sports and facility owners and developers, and what our role is with the municipalities and the cities, and in some cases states, and trying to find that balance now of saying. Are we? I do think we we need to take a step back and read communities properly, and I think part of that is understanding the mass amount of of money and capital that we're going to need on our infrastructure systems, including transportation. The private sector, when we're building these facilities, and we've repeated this in both New York with Belmont and in Washington with Seattle and the Seattle Center Arena, we're not in the transportation business. We don't have the wherewithal to go plan transportation. What, What we, one, we must rely on the communities and the cities and the governments to stay focused on the core big three, which is transportation, education, and safety. And that means we probably have to take an even greater risk and role on privatizing these points of destination facilities. That's the balance. That's the private-public partnership. But I also think we all got to take a step back and go, look, th- this is changing so quickly. So we, we predict in Seattle, 15 to 20 percent of the people that will come to our arena are going to come from Uber, Lyft, or the other like companies in that particular category. We think that by the time we open up 
an arena like Belmont uh, and Seattle and the other ones we're working on, the last mile of transportation could include things like drones. Uh, and we think more and more as we see where technology is going, the last mile is going to go through a rapid, rapid change as to thinking outside the box on people and how they're going to come and go to these facilities. It's going to be less about parking. It's going to be less about parking structures. It's going to be more about light rail, monorail, uh, Uber, Lyft, drones. And we're, we're going to live in a very different world five to ten years from now because the technology and the pay, as I said, um, Airbnb didn't exist ten years ago. Uber Lyft didn't exist ten years ago. Our iPhone that controls our life didn't exist twelve years ago. Spotify didn't exist six years ago. So we got to think outside the box on how rapid the technology change is occurring and how, whether that be the customer experience and 5G and what that allows us to do with our customers on, you know, now we could pre-reserve parking spaces. We could tell them how to get to the parking space. We tell them how to walk from that parking space to the most convenient entry. We tell them the concession stands and the food they want to eat and how to get there and then how to get to their seat. We're not in the business of transportation, but we are absolutely in the business of thinking about how that transportation is going to change, how people are going to want to come to these buildings. And in the case of the urban buildings, I think the last mile is going to be the great challenge now for developers to think through how people are going to utilize different technology and modes of transportation to get to and from these buildings. Tim Lawicki, the CEO of the Oak View Group, we got to have you back because we just the whole interview went by so we quick. We didn't even touch on in arena experience yeah, uh, yet, so which is his specialty that yeah. we that we wanted to talk about, and, and well, we just scratched I've, the surface. I, I learned a long time ago with Scott if if I let him ask me one question and then give a really long answer, I don't get into trouble with his other questions. Because <laughs> you know, I've got more in my back pocket. I've got I've got I way know. more. I know, brother. I know from all the times you asked me questions, I gave answers, and then people call me afterwards going, do you realize what you just said? And I'm like, no, what did I say? Yeah, you just deny it. <laughs> <laughs> that tends to work for somebody we all know and love. All right, Tim, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you, sir. Takeaways from Tim Lawicki. Well, there are many takeaways. I think the, the biggest thing that I noticed is that when you're dealing with a live entertainment group and they promote the show this that's all out there, how it has come such a long way from just the good old days of, hey, let's just sell some tickets. They'll show up. Don't worry. It's a night and day difference now. My takeaway is you better pray and pray hard because, as Tim said, it was out to the suburbs. Right. Let's go to Detroit. Yep. That's That was the trend. And then all of a sudden, what do you do when you build your thing and you're sort of on that trend line? Now it's, oh, reverse course. Now we're back to the city. Yeah. You know, you hope you get it right. And, they, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And my takeaway is that Laiwiki has a very long memory when he said, only give me the chance at one question, because if you answer more, you're going to get in trouble. That's right. Uh, he, he denied something he said to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we were joking about it. So the takeaway here is Tim Laiwiki does not forget. <laughs> My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. 
Time now for the number of the week, and I've got to talk about I know we had one way we were thinking about going, but i got to talk about this number. Okay. The number is 91. Sergey Fedorov. No. Detroit. No. Well, no, he was. he's in Detroit. He no. Was. Yes, he was. Yes. But, that's, but that's not well, what, but 91. Said, no. well, 91. This is NASCAR related. No, it's not. Oh, good. I have no, no, it's I, not. I have no idea. You had shown me how to do a survey <laughs> a on poll, Twitter. A Twitter poll. And finally, we're going to answer this question once and for oh, all. Oh, you got the answers. The question was, if you are blindfolded. It's a taste test. Can you tell the difference between Pepsi and Coke? Right. And out of like about 1,600 people, right. 91% said yes. Really? Yes. So I'm, I am... Yeah, how'd we get so many? How'd we, how'd we get so 1,600 respondents? I, I was say? shocked. I, I I was amazed that we got that many oh, okay. people that came in. It's, but yeah, in fact, some of the people on Twitter, one person wrote, I hope you're really joking about this question. Because I, I guess this is obviously something that, you know, it's everybody knows. I, I, I'm on the, I'm in the minority on this one. I, I cannot tell. I don't care. I'm brand agnostic when it comes to my Coke, or I should say to my cola of choice. And again, about 1,600 people, 91% said, yeah, we can tell the difference. Good for them. I guess that's why it matters. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Snarky. (laughs) You've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time. Plus, online as an Apple podcast, you can catch that Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. Big Bar, and I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on Twitter at Soshnick. Thanks very much for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. And online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.